Hey, it's Jay. I want to let you in on a little secret about the public speaking industry. It's not really a secret. I don't think secrets exist. If somebody says I have the secret to success or seven simple secrets to something good happening, just run in the other direction. So, okay, let's redo that. I want to share with you something that I don't think enough public speakers are willing to talk about. Because usually when they appear on a podcast, they're trying to talk about whatever it is they're speaking about, their topics, their exploration. They just wrote a book. Let's talk about that. But if you look at the meta level, the structure of how great keynote speakers perform, and it is a performance, the best, the professionals, the people who, like me, earn a significant portion of their living through public speaking, they have to make a trade-off, which is you need to do the same type of talk maybe even the same exact talk over and over again. You trade off bespoke customization end-to-end for each audience for the ability to actually improve your material beyond what one instance of that talk will allow you to do. If you're hiring me to speak, for example, you don't want me to do something brand new. You want me to do the thing that I've written about, podcasted about, pressure-tested publicly with real audiences, just like a stand-up comedian would, over and over and over again. And now you're getting the best of the best. However, you still need to customize. You still need to understand that each audience is in some ways slightly different. There are through lines. There are commonalities, of course. Your big idea should apply no matter where you're speaking. But what about your examples? What about your terminology? Like maybe you should say clients instead of customers because you're speaking to somebody different today. Well, that's where an approach needs to come in that I call making a modular experience. This is something I learned from very many good mentors. A modular experience, when you have a structure to whatever you're creating, you know the blocks and the beats. This happens in TV, this happens in podcasting, or it should, this happens in public speaking. The modules are these things that you can rip out and replace. So for example, every speech I give, I have the same lead story. It's a universal, it's meant to show the big idea I'm here to talk about, end-to-end. It's about a coffee company. We can all relate to coffee, we can all relate to the person whose story I'm telling. But later in the speech, I'm trying to make a very specific point. And maybe today, I'm speaking to a tech company. Well, great, I have all these examples from my writing, from my past speaking, from my podcasts, that are suited for that crowd. Uh, Maybe the next day I'm speaking to a group of people who are developing, I don't know, something in HVAC. They're HVAC service providers, you know, uh, air conditioning and heating, etc. Well, that crowd might not really understand or even care to understand what goes on in tech. And yes, I could spend a lot of time trying to translate, but more so, I should probably rip out that second story and replace it with something that's more of a local business, a geographically constrained business, like the barbershop story I love to tell when I get on stages. So when your experience is modular, you're able to customize, repeat, test and tinker, and most importantly, improve your ideas over time. Two people who understand that are Alan Gannett and Shane Snow. They're the co-hosts of a podcast called Creative Hotline. Not only do they spend their time writing, thinking, and giving speeches about big ideas to advance people's work and ways of thinking in the workplace, they also have developed a co-hosted podcast, and it pulls from their speaking careers in a brilliant way. It is indeed modular, and that is how the show keeps getting better and better. So my question to all of us is, 
how can we do that too? I want to know how to do the things you do. A thing, a two, a three that only comes from you. Welcome to Three Clips, an original series from Castos. I'm your host, Jay Conzo. I'm an author, a speaker, and a podcaster. And on this show, I ask fellow podcasters to take us inside their best work a few little pieces at a time. Today, we're going to talk to Alan Gannett, one of the two hosts of Creative Hotline, and he's going to reveal some of the small stuff that made a big difference for his show. Alan is the author of the book, The Creative Curve, where he uses neuroscience to make the case that creativity is a skill not a gift, and it's learnable by anyone. Gee, you think we get along? (laughs) He's spoken about creativity at events including South by Southwest and TEDx, along with dozens of others. He has a background in tech, most notably as the founder of the marketing software platform TrackMaven, which merged with another company in 2018. And he's the father of a truly adorable corgi named Maven. Creative Hotline is an advice show for creators and entrepreneurs. Listeners can call in. They call an actual phone number and leave a message about some kind of creative question or quandary that they're dealing with. And then Alan and co-host Shane Snow, a fellow author, will play those voicemails on the show and attempt to answer the questions. Creative Hotline is a newer show. It just launched in March of 2021, and it's produced in partnership with Studio 71. Again, the show is a chat cast. There are no guests, just the voices of the question askers, plus the two hosts in conversation. But Alan and Shane have a modular approach. They have different segments. They have a plan. And that is a big, big reason why I wanted to talk to Alan about how they make their show better and better over time and how we can too. All right, so let's meet our guest today, Alan Gannett. So I've known you and Shane for a while in the marketing world, in the speaking circuit, et cetera. Uh, obviously, I was excited when both of you decided to do a show together. Why did you decide to do a show together? So I've known Shane for a while, like you have, and he's always been just like one of the kindest, sweetest human beings. He was the one who helped me get my book agent when I was first starting sort of on the writing side. And he has this energy that is just very fun and lighthearted, but also informative. And, you know, we hang out quite a bit. And whenever we hang out, I always feel like it's like been really enjoyable. And so I've always had this idea that we we should do something together. And then about a year ago, I was thinking as uh, COVID started happening, and there was just more time in the air, so to speak, that maybe this is the time to finally do a podcast. And I'd always been really interested in podcasts, but felt like there's just too many of the same show. Like how many shows can we do where we interview the CEO of a startup, right? Like there's too many. And I came up with the idea for doing a call and advice show because call and advice shows are huge on radio. They're some of the most syndicated, most listened to shows. They're super fun. They're interactive with the audience. They're something that people can really get emotionally invested in. But on podcasts, A, there's not that many of them. And B, there isn't one for this whole creator class. And there's so many people in that class of people. And it's like becoming a big topic. And so it just felt like something where something I care about, the right time and place. And then I really wanted to do it with a co-host because I just felt like that would be more fun. And it's nice to like have a co-founder with things. 
And Shane was sort of an obvious choice because he is just like, he knows so much about this. He knows all the science. We're really good friends in real life. And so talked to him about it and he was on board and just sort of spiraled from there. We're going to get into the dynamic between co-hosts because I think that's a really important one. We've had a few co-hosted shows appear on this show. So we'll talk about that. I'm really curious about your joint first foray into podcasting because <laughs> it'd be one thing if like Shane was a podcast veteran and here comes the newcomer, Alan Gannett, you've both of you are new to podcasting. So yeah. how did you find your way forward and get the show made? So I knew that we didn't want to do it indie because we both had a lot of other projects going on and I don't know how to edit audio. I don't know anyone who's an audio producer. Like that's just not sort of where I'm at. I'm working on a new big project. Shane's working on a bunch of big projects. And so basically our idea was let's pitch the show to the big podcast networks. And if someone's going to partner with us on it, great, we'll do the show. And if not, we're not going to do it because we just don't have the time to do all of the things. As you know, like podcast isn't just recording. There's so much more to doing it effectively. And so we put together a pitch deck, you know, went to the big podcast networks and, you know, we ended up signing to partner with Studio 71, which is a podcast network that has like shows like Something Scary and Bob Saget show and sort of is often thought of as a sort of celebrity podcast network, but they've been moving into more verticals like gaming and business. And it's just like felt right. They were super nice. They're very supportive. And that's, and that's what we did. One, one final question about the creation of your show. Sure. What did you find was compelling or where, where was the conversation focused when someone got back to you and said, yeah, this is interesting, we should talk? Because I think a lot, a lot of people want to pitch networks or brands or you know they'd like to place their show elsewhere for the support, for the instant access to an audience, for the revenue perhaps. And having worked for a venture capital firm, I can tell you every VC has an opinion about what a pitch deck should be. There's some basics. But what I feel like we don't talk about enough is like, what are the one to three things where mm. the, the conversation centers once the pitch is successfully handed out to someone? Does that make sense? Like we, we always yeah, talk about the construct of the slides, never the conversation yeah. that follows, but that's where the deal gets done. Yeah. So I think there's a few things that stuck out to them. One was that we both already had our own audiences. So there's an element of we weren't building from scratch. We were building from scratch. We came to podcasting, but we had audiences in other places. You know, I have a email newsletter that has like 45,000 subscribers. Shane, I think, has like 100,000. Like we have big followings on LinkedIn. We, we have some audience in which there's a starting place. So I think that was a big selling point. And so I think the idea of doing a new and interactive format for a really important audience with hosts that had a bit of a starting advantage because we already have an audience that's relevant to these topics. I wrote a book on creativity. Shane's written multiple books on collaboration and teamwork. And so I think that was all came together in a way that was really compelling. Awesome. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, Alan, now that our listeners have had a chance to get to know you a little bit, they know the basics of who you are and the basics of your show. It's time to get into the making and dissect creative hotline. And every episode <laughs> we use the same format. So each of our three clips helps us explore a crucial element of show development. Clip number one is about your premise. What's it about? Why do people subscribe? Clip number two is about your format and your experience. How is the show produced? Why do people stick around for the whole episode? 
And clip number three is about the connection that you and Shane have with each other and also you have with the audience, the relationship that forms. And then in a fourth segment, we will put our clips aside and we'll talk about reinvention because stagnation kills any creative project, no matter how good it started. Uh, And as a reminder to you, the listener, stick around after the closing credits of this episode. And Alan is going to shout out a show that is not at the top of the charts that he thinks is worth your time in our segment, Play It Forward. All right, Alan. So we're going to head into the first segment about your premise. Dun, dun, dun. There it is. Okay, we don't have to (laughs) add in the sound effect anymore. There we go. (laughs) For a listener, I think the premise is why people subscribe. It provides motivation to subscribe. And for most shows, we haven't really developed our premises enough. It's talking topics with experts, right? That's like too many shows. Like you said, how many shows do we need? (laughs) Interviewing yet another CEO or the same CEO who's doing the circuit or author or athlete or et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, So premises are these really powerful things. And you mentioned up front in your pitch, you talked a lot about the original nature of the show. Like the premise matters even to non-audience members, to folks who would buy your show, for example, or sponsor it, mm-hmm. perhaps, uh, or maybe even come on the show if you have guests, uh, which you don't. But the premise does a ton of good, and we don't develop it enough. You have a developed premise. So we're going to play a clip right now that conveys the power of your premise. We're pulling all three clips today from the very first episode of Creative Hotline. So it was your very first episode of any <laughs> show ever, period. <laughs> and the episode is titled Humans versus Machines, The Future of Creativity. And just to set up the clip here, Alan, we're going to hear your very first question on the show. First, we'll hear the the call-in listener and their question, and then we're going to hear the first part of your answer. Let's take a listen. Creative Hotline, leave your question at the... Hi, Alan and Shane. This is Jocelyn, um, and I have been really curious, or even anxious, honestly, about technology and jobs. But more specifically, it seems like technology will be able to replace a lot of jobs in the future, but there will always be a need for creativity, like a robot can't exactly write an amazing fiction novel. Um, So my question is, what areas of creativity are in danger of technological dominance? Or, you know, do you think creative jobs and fields are actually safer than others? Thank you. So... I love both parts of this question. The The second half is definitely, I think, the easier half. So I will answer that half first, which is I think creativity is definitely the most future-proof set of skills. Hmm. You know, if you think about AI, machine learning, all of these things, there is a lot of automation coming to white-collar jobs. You see this a lot right now in sort of the legal industries and mm-hmm. the finance industries where things we never thought could be automated are starting to be literally done by machines and computers. But... What that allows us to do is, as humans, we have more time for creative thought, strategy. You know, it's things that are truly, I think, human-oriented tasks. There's actually LinkedIn has had for the last two years in their survey of employers that creativity is the most sought-after soft skill that employers are looking for, which, by the way, I think is a little, a little, like, annoying because I don't think creativity is a soft skill. I think it's a hard skill, but that's, you know, maybe a fight for another day. Okay, Alan. So before I ask any questions on that, thoughts on that piece, the very first sort of non-introductory, non-trailer type moment of your podcasting career, what did you notice in that section? <laughs> so I'm, I'm pretty self-critical 
that's that's sort of a that's a big part of my personality. Wait, a creative person who's self-critical, really? I know it's shocking. It's shocking. And so for me, I hear every filler word, which is something I've been working on since doing a podcast. The, my three filler words are like, sort of, and right. And I just and I just use them too much. And so that to me, that's the first thing I hear. I'm like, <laughs> damn it. I said like twice. And how did you come to the decision with Shane or anyone else who might be working with you on the show um, that that would lead off? Because that's an important thing. You know, I, I understand why humans versus machines and, and the role creativity plays in in future-proofing your job. I understand why that would be such a powerful topic to lead off in terms of all the episodes you're running. Why was that a question? Like, uh, you got a few in this episode, yeah. you know? Like, so talk to me about that decision because you're setting the tone for the whole premise of the whole show. So I think with that first, the, the first question, our goal was to do something that feel, felt widely applicable. And that is an emotion, that is a idea that I've heard from a lot of creators over the last you know, five years of doing sort of creativity book and talking a lot about creativity. And so I think it was something that was both emotional, it was resonant, but it was also widespread. It wasn't a super niche question. Later, I think in this episode and also in other episodes, we have some questions sometimes that are much more specific to a person that maybe are interesting to listen to, but you can't necessarily relate to. This is something that really everyone who's in a creative field can relate to and something you think about because it's happening so fast around us. So that was the idea for picking this one as the first yeah. question. And yeah, to give you the background, basically Shane and I, you know, we're, what we're doing is we're either top down picking themes and then looking for questions in our sort of question bank that we have. So we have a bunch of people who've left us voicemails and finding questions that match that theme, or we're seeing, Oh, a bunch of questions are coming in around a specific theme let's let's like make that a sort of a theme of an episode because we had a whole big discussion early on of do we want the episodes to be thematic or do we want them to just be here's a grab bag of questions and i think we made the right call of making them thematic because it brings the conversation together throughout the questions where it doesn't just feel like three sort of random hits you both have a lot of advantages as podcasters, even though you're first time podcasters, like you have both delivered hundreds of keynote speeches, you've written very concept led books. And I think both of those things like keynotes and, and, and the books, the style of books you've both written, lend themselves to developing a show that itself has an arc, right, that you have to have the starting moment and get them all the way to the end and help them see the world differently, just like a keynote. And also has a premise, you know, like you you could in some scenario, this is how I wrote my first book, you could look back at a bunch of podcast episodes and write your book based on that if you had a premise for the show, mm. right? Like mm -hmm. most people writing big concept-led books, it's a very short step to do a big concept-led podcast. Mm. It's harder to do that connection when you're just interviewing a parade of experts about some general topics. Yeah, because because the issue there you get into is, you know, Tim Ferriss, for example, you know, has already cornered that, right? So there's only so many times we can write the 500 experts on life, you know, mega book. Exactly. Everybody's copying each other. Um, and there's very little differentiation. I, I do want to step outside the clip for a moment and talk about the development of the show's premise. So you and Shane were pitching this. So you had it before it was sort of green lit or, or purchased or optioned. Um, what Take me to that process of you and Shane rapping about how did you arrive at Creative Hotline? Yeah, so basically there was a sort of original idea for doing a, you know, we call it a reverend call and advice show for creatives. And that was the original hub that everything else, you know, sort of emanated out of. And what we did is we we thought about what are shows we like, 
What are sort of pacings that we like? And what we realized was, A, there should be some way to break up the questions because otherwise it could start to feel a bit repetitive. So we added in these little games where there's three questions and in between each question is a game. And we flip on the game. So one game is me directed to Shane. Another game is Shane directed to me, which also helps in just who's writing them. So sort of we write that one for each episode. And we then basically brainstormed out, you know, 10 different game ideas. And then we actually recorded both as sort of an AV test for our podcast, but also because we wanted to see how they sounded. We actually did all of those games. We did a run through of all of them to see how did they sound? Did they feel comfortable? And we actually found a bunch of interesting things like the games can't be too long, which they kind of very easily, we could write them out and they felt like they would be short. But once we got into them, they actually were six minutes. And we're like, well, this doesn't work. And so that was a really helpful activity. And so from there, we curated a list of here were things that worked. Here's some tweaks to how we asked them. We made them tighter, shorter. And then we started adding those in. And then it was just a little bit of trying to balance the format of the show. You know, with the podcast networks, they have advertising requirements. So where are ads going to cut in? And how can the show make sure that people want to listen through the ad? And so we added some things like we added a wrap up discussion at the end because we found it was a nice way to tie everything together, but also give a more logical break before an ad break. And so there's things like that where iterating on it over time, plus bringing in the constraints that we had from the network sort of led to where we came to. So we're gonna move on to the second segment. So Alan, creative hotline, awesome premise. And an awesome premise is an awesome start. And then you gotta go like make this, the, the content. Like, got to make it the content, as my ancestors might say. Um, <laughs> leave it in. Leave it in. Uh, the show is not just about some idea that sounds nice and then you don't execute well on it. The formatting, the structuring, the uh, execution of the edit, it all flows from that premise. So they have to match. And so we are going to play a clip that shows us how wonderfully formatted Creative Hotline actually is. Because once you have a great premise... That gets people to subscribe. You need a great experience. That gets people to stay. And that's the point of the work. Um, so same episode. We're going to move it forward. And, you know, you're you're both serious about creativity, but you're also entertaining people. And so you'd mentioned the games that you interject into the flow of your listener call-ins. We're going to play a clip from one of those games. It's mm -hmm. called Creative Hotline Bling. Can you just explain to people what Creative Hotline Bling is? So... <laughs> I think we're both pretty cheesy and we think word association's funny. And so when we call the show Creative Hotline, I think someone at some point made a joke of we have to do something with hotline bling. And so I'm infamously among my friend group, not very pop culture aware outside of like Taylor Swift. And so basically we came to this idea of, you know, Shane, who's much hipper than I, he should ask me Drake trivia questions sort of a bit of a, a bit of a straight man, sort of, even though I'm gay, but a bit of a straight man comedy routine, essentially. And so the result was creative hotline bling. And the, what it is, is Shane asking me what I think are very difficult Drake related trivia questions. <laughs> All right, let's, let's experience that discomfort. Here we go. <laughs> In 2011, rising megastar rapper Drake released a hit song where at one point he laments about how it got so empty. 
And then he says something that I think you'll find relatable as a creative person who feels pressure to keep cranking stuff out. He says, if they don't get it, they'll be over you. That new shit that you got is overdue. You better do what you're supposed to do. You ever felt like that, Alan? All the time. Yeah, they just, yeah, they're going to get over you if you don't keep cranking it out. Anyway, at the end of this, Drake decides that if he's going to pull this off, he says, I guess it's just me, myself, and blank. So this is the question. Who is it that's going to help Drake keep going, keep cranking out creative material? Me, myself, and who? So I will admit to not having heard this song before. (laughs) So fair question. I've definitely felt the pressure of needing to sort of push yourself forward and the craft forward. So I empathize with Drake. I get, I get, I get what he's throwing down. Me, myself, you know, those two words are mean the same thing. So, you know, I think Drake's a smart guy. You know, I, I remember back when he was on Degrassi. I forgot if he was a good student in Degrassi, but we'll say he was. And I think that he believes in parallelism, right? He gets how to he gets how to write a lyric. So if I had to guess, it'd be me, myself, and something that is also representative of himself. And I don't think me, myself, and himself doesn't have quite the right vibe to it. And so my guess is that it's me, myself, and I is the lyric. You think that the that the cliche, me, myself, and I, is actually what he's going to say? Yes. It all c- comes down to. Well, I don't, I don't have control of the sound effects. How do I do the... the I, I can do it. I can do okay. it. I got you. All right. Give me give me a you you lose sound effect. Oh no! But also you're kind of right, so maybe you get a little bit of a buzz. Drake says, "I guess it's just me, myself, and all my millions." <laughs> so, uh, you both play character well. Uh, that's, a, <laughs> that's a missing piece in so many co-hosted shows. Is is the the separation, whether for the whole episode or as with this segment for a segment, the separation of the roles co-hosts play. I mean, you even mentioned before you play the you play the straight man to, to <laughs> Shane's much hipper pop culture savvy individual. Was it natural for you to just start explaining your answer or did you get a note saying like or did you and Shane decide, oh, I should talk it out before I give the answer? Because I think it was a really smart choice. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So when we tested it, what we found was that when we when we talked out the answer, it was much more interesting and fun and amusing than when we just answered them and did more questions. Because we did one format where it was like we asked three questions and gave quick answers. Uh-huh. And we found that, that wasn't really as fun as the sort of thought process version of it. So yeah, that was a result of doing the testing experimentation. When you say doing the testing and experimentation, is it was it only you and Shane kind of reflecting on your own created work? Or did you open that up to, you know, folks who were involved in the show or friends? So we sent it to folks at the podcast network and they sent back notes, which was really helpful. And then we also sent it to some friends who are sort of in the podcasting world, have their own podcasts. We sort of like, you know, they'll have opinions on and got their feedback. Thanks too. for including me on that, Alan. That was really nice of you. I really appreciate <laughs> that next time. We're going to, let's just bank this episode and never, never publish it. Andrea. Thanks, Alan. <laughs> Love you. <laughs> Uh, we're gonna we're gonna move on. Uh, I'm playing I'm playing a character there. I am a little bit because I'm trying to bring out some dynamism, and I feel like I feel like that's what you guys do really well. And and, and again, you're both 
public performers, lots of content online. Um, you know, Alan, you've done a lot of video. You've both done a lot of public speaking. It, it, it helps. And the weirdest, the weirdest thing I'd say about when you do public speaking as a career, I've given essentially the same talk about now 140 times. Oh, yeah. And so I know my lines to a T. I know my pauses. I know my body movements. And it's not even something I'm conscious of. I just, I know, I know where to pause for jokes. I know where to pause for laughter. So that is one weird thing about the podcast is it is strange to not have the audience there and interactive. And also it's new versus I know my material when it comes to my like keynote so well. Yeah. And so that is fun. I do know sort of how to give a speech and like how to talk and how to like make things more dynamic. But I would say this is one of the fun parts about podcasting is like learning that, you know, and getting a sense for that. Talk to me about your performer voice. We've talked about the structuring yeah. of the episode a little bit with the game. What are you hearing about your delivery? Because it is different than a stage, but your delivery into a microphone and how that's changed. I've had to learn, and this was also a thing with my audiobook, which I like, it's funny, my audiobook. I have a different voice than the podcast voice. In my audiobook, I kind of did my stage voice, which 90% of people were fine with. And it has like on Audible, like I think 4.3 out of five stars, which like totally, that rounds up to four and a half, like totally reasonable. But there are some reviews where people are like, why is he shouting? Oh my God, me too. No, no, I'm so glad to hear you say that. My audiobook, I cannot listen to it because I'm like, oh no, this is not podcast, Jay. This is stage, Jay. That's yeah. no good. And so I think for this one, I've learned, I learned to like be quieter and talk more in a normal animated talking voice than in a animated speaking voice, which I can, I'm going to back away from the mic for a second, but it's like, hi, my name is Alan, right? It's like, it's like, that is not what you want to hear when you're listening to an audiobook or podcast, it turns right, out. Right, right. And, and one, one of the things I've recognized, I'd be curious because we have, we have different numbers of episodes under our belt, but we're both equally interested in the elements of creativity that make an experience great. So I'm sure we could both geek out on this, which is, as you start to do more and more podcasts, your performer voice becomes like a muscle. Like you don't, mm. you don't have to be as physically animated for that voice to come mm. out and sound professional. Like I always admire. That's interesting. You know, like like media personalities when they speak, they can look so bored. But if you close your yeah. eyes, it's like they sound they sound animated and animated. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I I totally buy that. I mean, my public speaking voice now. I mean, I'm still physically very animated, but it's it is something that's very. I get on a stage. And I start talking, it's very second nature. Yeah. And so I can imagine that with sort of podcasting voice too. Do you have any ticks that are not just the inserting of like filler words, like, you know, like that you've noticed with your podcast performance voice? Like when you're performing the actual material, are you thinking mm. about different things you'd like to get better at? I, I would say that the ones on my mind right now, I'm a big believer in improve one thing at a time. Right now, my main thing is like, like, there you go, is like, like, write, and sort of, uh -huh. I just use them too much. I, and I don't quite know why I use them because I don't use them when I give a public talk. So it's something to do with the fact that the material is more, you know, t it's happening more real time. And so I think I'm using it as a way to slow down, to catch up with my sort of like brain voice. Because when I'm giving my talk talk, since I know all the material by heart, there's no need for those pauses. So it's something to do with how I pause you know, Barack Obama uses and to do this. And I think I could probably find a more eloquent way to do that. I don't know what it is yet. Do you do that? 
I think a little bit. You know what it is? I had a, a friend tell me once, the great Tamsin Webster, who is a speaker coach and a wonderful speaker in her own right. We were chatting at, after an event, um, after a gig about the craft of speaking because we're nerds. And I was talking about how I was worried I go too fast because I'm energetic on mm. a stage, also on a microphone. And, and she said something I'll never forget, which is don't slow down, pause <laughs> between bursts. Hmm. And on a microphone, what I've realized is that's even more important because they can't physically see you or the waveforms. They can't have no like visual cues to follow. (laughs) So the audience is slightly more behind a podcast than like a video Hmm. or a speech. That's interesting. And, you know, I've talked to Andrea and Cherie, producers for this show about this. It can plague us as editors, too, because when we edit moments together, we can put them too close because we can see the waveform. So when we view Hmm. it, it seems like there's enough distance between sentences. When we listen to it and like close our eyes, it runs together too much. So if you think of it as the audience is always slightly behind, they need a beat here and there, mid-sentence or post-point to catch up. I like that a lot. Yeah, pauses are so powerful, but I usually don't think about pauses in in between bursts, but I like that idea. Because you're a naturally animated person. Don't change that. I talk fast, yeah. Yeah, don't change that. You can't. You'd sound (laughs) unnatural. You'd sound fake. So the way you harness it is you just sort of practice that, the pauses Mm, in between. I like that a lot. So... The next section is about our audience connection between us as hosts and the listener. And developing those inside jokes and those recurring segments is a wonderful way to develop your relationship. So we've pulled out a clip that is evocative of your relationship with each other and the, and the audience. The caveat here is, you know, what's the point of that relationship? You know, it's not just to like grow the show, be number one, be the biggest. It's to create an experience that someone can declare is their favorite for the mm. purpose you're aiming to embody. And What I love about the word favorite is it's irrational bias. It's the Mm. personal preferred pick. It's not an objective thing. So when you say this is my favorite shirt, you're somehow self-expressing. It's about your identity. So if I said to you, Alan, so there's this awesome new kind of like pseudo indie, pseudo country pop singer with like curly blonde hair from Nashville. um, Stop listening to Taylor Swift. Listen to her instead. What would you say to me? I, I would be I would be grief stricken. Yeah. You'd be like, no, because Taylor <laughs> is Taylor. Like uh, Taylor is, is is of you. Yeah. Right. Like she's part yeah, we're of not, you. Yeah. This is no. Yeah. This is I can't even handle this. No. All right. We're, we'll move on. Move on. It's fine. I don't, we are not here to traumatize our guests. Deeply triggered. We're deeply triggered. Deeply. We're, the deeply. point being, we have this irrational bias, which as creators, we want from our audience. It, it, it is that deep relationship that nobody can compete with. So how are Mm. you trying to establish that? Well, in our third and final clip, here you are responding to another listener question. And this listener says that he he coded, so he's an engineer, he he coded and used a poem generator. The generator then wrote a poem and he submitted it to a poetry contest and was disqualified. And he asks if you and your co-host Shane Snow would consider his poem to indeed be a work of art, unlike the judges of that competition. And here's your response. I have a personal experience here that I'm going to share. This is, right. this is something we haven't shared before. But I was in Boy Scouts as a kid, and they have this thing called the Pinewood Derby, which is a you race, you make a 
Pinewood car and you race it down a track and whoever gets first wins. Sort of intuitive, right? Well, not so intuitive for me. So my my dad and I were like, okay, we're going to make a car. And my dad pointed out that where does it say it has to be made of wood? And so we made a car out of metal and we brought it to the Pinewood Derby and we were disqualified <laughs> because they were like, it's the Pinewood Derby, uh... which to be honest was a fair point. <laughs> and so, yeah. okay. So Kevin, I get you. That being said, in this case, well, that was a fair point. I actually don't think this was a fair point, no matter sort of what the the normative sort of rules were, because ultimately, when we think about art, when we think about creativity, I mean, art, to me at least, is really all of the context around it. And so think about Andy Warhol, you know, he literally would call a screen printer and say, I want, you know, this image in these colors. And then it would be brought to him. Like he was, his hand wasn't touching a lot of that stuff. In other instances, he was using assistance. You know, Jeffrey Koons used assistance. So art is not about just the craft. In fact, many times it's almost how we manipulate or all of the context about the craft. So I actually think what you did is very artistic and very cool. My dad, by the way, when uh, he heard that episode, <laughs> sent me a really cute email about it. He was like, I remember that too. And I was like, okay, as long as we haven't you know, blacked that out of our collective conscious. I was actually going to comment on the fact that you started with that personal story because you could have easily started with the insights and the direct answer to the question from that caller and you didn't. And I feel like we make that decision all the time throughout lots of episodes as interviewers in what we ask the guests to share or as hosts and what we share which is typically the insight or the advice leads, or it's what we go for first. Hmm. Then we might follow up and ask for an example or give one if we're the speaker. And I think flipping that is way more powerful. Hmm. Where you, you share the anecdote, you relate to people, um, and then the insights flow more naturally and also are sort of stickier because you're, you're open to listening. You're open, you're connected to the speaker a little bit more fully. Hmm. I like, I mean, I, I, had, I didn't think of it with that level of clarity. So, but I, I mean, that... I'm going to keep doing it then. That sounds good. There's another version of the show, which is what we call uh, three times Jay overthinks things. Because <laughs> it's, like, it's kind of might become my, my want on this show is to be like, that is brilliant. And the other person's like, really? Cool. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think it's good to know what worked. You know, we were joking before about the sort of glut of interview shows, but I do think there's some interview shows that are quite good. And I was trying to think about why. And so when I started working on this podcast, one thing I admitted to you before we started recording that I'll admit to your listeners is I'm not actually a huge podcast listener. And so in preparation for this, I started listening to a lot of podcasts. And so I listened to the ones you'd sort of assume. I listened to Joe Rogan. I listened, you know, I'm friends with Jordan Harbinger, who I think is a really great interviewer. I listened to a lot of his stuff and sort of just listened to like, listen to Planet Money, you know, the, the shows that everyone talks a lot about. I was like, I'm going to listen, try and get these. And one thing I thought was so interesting that really stuck out to me is the people who are really good interviewers, and I would include Joe Rogan. I know he's controversial, but I think we can agree he's at least objectively a good interviewer, Sure, is they ask really relevant and contextual follow-ups to the conversation. They're not just going through a list of questions, but I listened to the entire like two-hour interview of Miley Cyrus and Joe Rogan, which is just an amazing feat of interviewing. And she'll say something. And then they'll dive in and talk about it. And he'll sort of like relentlessly want to like ask more and more about it. 
And a lot of times it's that like third level of abstraction or focus where the most interesting things seem to come out. And that to me is one example of something that I feel like is a learnable skill. The, the only thing I'd add to that, because I think you're correct, I think a really great interviewer, when they have that level of skill, the contextual follow-ups, like that's what an interview is. It's series of follow-ups. And most people think it's like clever questions like Tim Ferriss, if you had a billboard, what would it say? Mm. Or pre pre-planned questions because you did the research. I actually think a really good interviewer could walk into a room and only need to know what the show is about. It's like, congrats, Alan, you're not going to host a show called Three Clips. And <laughs> so you ask me, like, what's it about? I give you the one liner and you're good from there. You could have a pretty damn good interview if you've honed those skills, only knowing what the show's about, because that affects the angle and the specifics of yeah. what you want to explore with I that guest, right? But then you, you just kind of like start and then pursue curiosity from there. Yeah. I mean, one thing that someone taught me once, uh, or maybe I read online, one thing I once gained some someone else's wisdom around, I'm not sure how, was, I remember who it was actually, told me when you're interviewing people, start with their childhood. If you're like, so I interview people for the books I write. And the advice you give is start with their childhood because everything roots back to childhood. There's so much of our lives that, you know, really come down to sort of how we were raised and what that looks like. And people often don't talk enough about it. And so when you're interviewing someone, I, I what I've found for my books, is if I start there, A, I get a much quicker picture of who they are. B, they sort of open up much more quickly. And they also enjoy the interview more because the questions are more different and more novel and they're approaching them from a more chronological perspective versus a highlight perspective where it's, you know, you did this one big thing once. Let's talk about that. You got to let a little bit of the humanity come through. And I, I think like you and I coming from the business world have experienced most most of the content in our yeah. niche is so the opposite of that. You know, it's sound bites, it's pre-planned questions, it's the lazy, you know, you've done book tours. You know, when you get interviewed six times in a week about the creative curve, they're asking similar questions. And by the sixth time, yeah, well, they, you have a they great even ask light. for the questions. They ask for, they ask for like, what are the questions people like to ask you? Which I'm like, okay, here they are. But it is, it is sort of- Wait, wait, hold on. So the hosts are like, what questions do others typically ask you? For book tour stuff, 100%. Oh no. Especially mainstream press stuff. Like a lot of times they're like, do you have like example questions or common questions or FAQs that people ask a lot? Super common. Oh boy. <laughs> I hope they're asking for it in order to then go beyond it so they know no. what not to ask. <laughs> but no, yeah. Oh boy. All right, we're going to mix things up. In our last segment, we're going to leave the clips behind and we're going to look ahead. Every creative project faces a source of friction known as time. The context changes, you you change, the audience changes. And so no matter how strongly you start, I think we're in the business of constant little and sometimes big forms of reinvention. That's what makes an experience rich over time the more we come back to it. And so what I'm curious to know, Alan, is as you think about future episodes, how are you thinking about reinventing this show to keep it fresh for you and Shane, so you're really excited, but also for the listener? Great question. So one thing is we talk a lot about the idea of bringing voices in. So we're doing that through these questions, right? And we literally, you can hear the voices of the listener, but we've also talked about, and we, we have an idea for what we're going to do, the idea of bring in, even though we don't have guests, there could be interesting times, sort of like a phone a friend moment 
where we call an expert in a particular thing and ask them to join in and chime in, that idea of getting more voices in. So I think that is sort of an obvious sort of thing that could be really interesting in an advice show. The other thing is obviously doing some live episodes, whether as like a marketing thing or as a marketing thing where we record it and actually release them as an episode. But I think that is inherently sort of there's a tension with live that can be really exciting and fun. And so I don't think we're there yet, but eventually I'd love to do a few like special live edition type episodes. I have the unique privilege here to know that, you know, the journey you've been on and Shane, and also to be speaking to somebody who's early in that journey. A lot of folks we talk to are, are veteran podcasters and a lot of our listeners are not. What Mm. would you say to a listener who is in your position, you know, six to nine months ago, they're thinking about a show. They've maybe been dancing around an idea. Um, there's the pithy advice, which is like, just start. <laughs> and, and we hear that too much. You're too good with the creative stuff you understand. Can you take us a little deeper? What would you say to that person who's thinking about podcasting? Two thoughts. One is um, something that I think is really important. I know you think is really important, but sort of avoid the crowd, right? So if there's, you know, we talk about interview shows, look for areas where there's things are more empty, because those are the areas where you can sort of build up. And then in terms of execution, I think podcasts are surprisingly sort of technical to do really well. There's a lot of post-production editing type stuff. So finding a good freelance audio producer who can abstract that for you, because I think if you don't do that, I suspect that's going to end up preventing you from, at some point you're going to get fed up with the amount of work it takes. And especially if that's not your core skill, if you're more of a storyteller or a communicator, you're, you know, you're not an audio engineer. I think that's the thing where you have to be willing to abstract that out in order for your own sort of mental sanity. Alan Gannett, co-host of Creative Hotline. People should check it out. Alan, thanks so much. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Andrea Moraskin with original theme music by Cardboard Rocket Chip. You can learn more about me and my projects, including my free newsletter, my books, my other podcasts, and my course for podcasters at jayaconzo.com. Three Clips is a Castos original series. One of the reasons I wanted to partner with the tech company Castos with this show is that Castos believes what we believe. They believe things like the creator economy is the future. And many of us will create personal brands, independent brands, and independent platforms. And so what's paramount is a platform where you actually control your content and your experience, and you're able to engage directly with your listeners because you don't own the experience nor the audience when you rely solely on Apple, Spotify, etc. So Castos develops tools to give podcasters the flexibility to work both with other tools they're already using and directly with their audience and not rely so much on third-party platforms that, oh, by the way, really don't care about anyone's business but their own. So Castos stands with creators. That's why I love working with them. That's why I love making this show with them. Check them out at castos.com. All of these links are in your show notes. And now let's go to our bonus segment where every episode we ask our guests to recommend a podcast that is not at the top of the charts, a show they want to show some love to. We call this segment Play It Forward. The show I want to shout out is called First Money In. It's my friend Jonathan Lacoste and two of his friends. And it's essentially three young VCs and tech entrepreneurs talking about the news of the day. And it's it's similar in format to the All In Pod, which is sort of one of the biggest tech podcasts now. But 
the big difference is they're younger and more diverse. And it actually, you know, at first I was sort of like, oh, this seems like very familiar, maybe too familiar. But in listening to it, I actually think that their perspective, I listened to both of those shows, the All In Pod and the show, their perspective is radically different on very similar issues. And I actually found that it's been really interesting to listen to and to get that different perspective. And so the show is called The First Money In Podcast, and I highly recommend it. All right, that's it for this episode. As always, I'm your host, Jay Akunzo, and I believe great podcasting is not about who arrives. It's about who stays. So thank you so much for staying with me, and I'll talk to you every Monday with a new episode of the show. See ya. See ya.